Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Breaking Left. I'm Troy, and I'm here with my two very dear friends. I'm Corey. And Bill. And we are, we're talking about kind of a heavy topic today. And unfortunately, but fortunately for people who are listening and for us who get to ask questions, Corey, you'll be bearing most of the burden. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready. Let's do this. (laughs) Well, let's talk a little bit about what it is. Yeah. So um, some of you may know if you listen to another show that I co-host, Gay-Based Communism, where we talk about politics and Trek. We recently did, at the time of this recording, it was recent, but it was, uh, by the time you hear this, it'll be a couple of months ago. We did an episode where we talked about war and what it was like to be there. And I was in both Iraq and Afghanistan, but not as a member of the United States military. I was there as a contractor, as a wartime contractor. And there's a lot of folks on the left that have a lot of perceptions, some of them accurate, some of them very much not (laughs) accurate about what being a defense contractor means. I will say that me being a contractor is was a a key point in my uh, my political development and awakening. My radicalization, as it were, was definitely an experience that has defined me and defined my life and opened my eyes to a lot of different things. But there is so much that the general public does not understand about how military contracting works. And I think it's really important for us to start exposing some of this because we cannot help drive and inform good policy if we don't understand these realities and if we continue to operate only on the basis of caricatures that we have created about what uh, defense contractors are and what they mean. That's right. And and to be to speak really pointedly to that is the progressive movement is made up of a lot of different kinds of people. And mm-hmm. many of those people are newly woke. You are not so newly woke, but your process took you through you were on the front lines, literally, of these issues that become kind of abstracted when they get home. And there is yep. a this uh, propensity for people on the left to make these real knee-jerk reactions and to try to apply some kind of impossible purity test to people who have had those experiences. And that's not what we're doing on this podcast. As a matter of fact, I think part of the reason why we're doing this is to illuminate how stupid that is. <laughs> yeah, I think what to kind of build, build on what you're talking about, it, it's not only the abstracting process. Even before the abstracting process happens, there's like an over-secretization. And it's not that I don't think anyone here could or would be spilling any national security state secrets or anything like that. It's just that the way this current state operates and has operated, it's like to ship toilet paper from Virginia to the Middle East becomes a state secret. And if you do that enough, like if you're shipping millions of dollars of a commodity halfway around the world, but it's just a simple commodity to support whatever, who knows, you know, it's just like people should know about that. Yeah, that's right. 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 And they they can attempt to cover the most mundane, but yeah. yeah. Right. And I think kind of what these type of conversations will go into is like, can we self-govern? And if we can self, like to self-govern means that you have to be able to take in the good with the bad. Contend with the bad at the very least. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Bill, you're kind of coming at this from a different angle, too, because you were in the service. You were in the Navy. So you must have at some point in your service, you must have dealt with or interacted with contractors on some level. So, yeah, definitely. uh, You know, you don't pull into a. I was in the Navy, so you don't pull into a poor overseas without interacting with some type of contracting service, if only to get you off of the ship. I mean, that's a contract. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, so uh, and often like a place like Dubai, you step off a boat into small little food service shops or a computer shop. You know, that might either be DOD or it could be a local contractor. You know? mm-hmm. Not everything is contracting guns, bombs and missiles. Right. It's like there's a lot of mundaneness to the salad uh, bar. The exa- Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. And I'm here just because I'm a white guy with opinions. So we uh, we need more of that. We in need the more world. of those. Please. Yes. More. <laughs> so I'll be playing the role of that guy. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome <laughs> to both of you then. <laughs> it is yeah. my pleasure to be here. Truly my pleasure. <laughs> and yours as well. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> 
yeah. So I mean, this is this is one of those topics that we're going to have to dive into like multiple times, multiple ways. I'm sure that the subject will continue to come up as we come across kind of parallel issue sets uh, that we're going to talk about in in subsequent episodes. But like, I appreciate that you all wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about this particular experience that I've had. Something that's really interesting is that until I recorded that episode with my friends, uh, I gay space cast i had never really spoken publicly and actually quite infrequently even spoke privately with people about my experiences as a contractor and there's a lot of reasons for that um there's a, there's a huge stigma attached to it people on every side of the politics of the issue have opinions about it i have been living and working abroad for the last 17 years and that for some people that are more inclined to the right side of the political spectrum see that as like oh you've abandoned your country <laughs> you know you're you, you don't love America enough to live here and that that's kind of a weird feeling so that's one reason why I didn't tell people about like me being overseas for a long time um, and then they also attach a lot of like weird assumptions about patriotic duty and what it means to be a wartime contractor specifically I worked in Iraq Kuwait and Afghanistan under various contracts for a period of, of that 17 years about 10 years of that was actively in war zones in uh, mostly in Iraq and Afghanistan and so that was and it is it's a very intense experience you know when you're in that environment you're living on the military bases you're in the same kind of housing as the troops if not worse housing in some cases like I I spent a good portion of time living in tents with 40 other women when I first got to Afghanistan I not only lived in a tent I had a top bunk and there was a waiting list for the bottom bunk Um, that was a premium Now, would these be would these be other contractors? Would be yeah, yeah, yeah. You're always housed with other other people from the same company that you worked with. And in each case, for me, I worked for one of the larger contractors that was providing logistics support to the military. Another common misconception that people have about contracting in war zones, in particular, is they think they either think that you think of defense contractors as the people that are building the planes and the bombs, or you think of them as the armed mercenaries that go around wantonly murdering civilians completely unaccountable and, you know, free to do whatever they wanted to do. That perception, there are bad people that do that kind of thing. That is uh, still a pretty egregious misrepresentation about how contracting works. There is an unbelievable, like just an unbelievable amount of oversight. People think that contractors just to go get to go do whatever they want and like nobody's paying attention. Nobody's counting nothing like, no, let me tell you something. In each of the jobs that I worked in, we were audited on some level by some entity, either a, an internal department or a military agency or, you know, that was tasked with some portion of the oversight or the actual defense contract auditing agency, the DCAA, would come in and audit some portion of the work that we were doing at least four or five times a week. At least four or five times wow. a week, we had somebody coming in to audit some portion of the work that we were doing. We had some inspection we had to pass. You know, we had people doing surprise pop-up inspections. Like, there is an, a shocking amount of, or like, the regulatory regime there is unbelievable. And so this this idea that like it's the big wild west and people can just go out there and do whatever the hell they want and there's no there's no one watching the store is just not the way that it works. So yeah, we we did we lived on the military base, worked on the military base. We work seven days a week when we were in in the theater of operations. Our work shift was minimum of twelve hours. So we you know it would be like seven a.m. to seven p.m. or for people that work night shift would work you know seven p.m. to seven a.m. So we had around the, the clock base operations and and often like the 12 hours sounds like a lot and it is a lot but it actually doesn't end there because a lot of times you would end up having to work overtime um it's very common for me to end up working 14 16 hour a day and let me tell you difference between 12 hours and 14 hours doesn't sound like a lot but it is <laughs> especially you're grinding when, your gears at that yeah 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 i mean literally all you do is work and sleep and you do this seven days a week and you do get a you know pretty generous amount of vacation time depending on the contract that you're on so usually like every three to four months you would get like a couple of weeks off but like the hours that you're working and the time that you're putting in you you literally just you take two weeks off you go sleep for two weeks and then you come back to the war and that's your vacation Um, so, wow. you know, and where, where are you, where are you sleeping when you, when you're going on the, that grand vacation, where, where is that vacation? 
Well, I mean, it's different for different people. Um, you know, a lot of people just wanted to go home because a lot of them. You oh, know, they are so that you can go home. Yeah, yeah. So you actually like leave the the war zone, and you you can. You I know, gotcha. some people take trips, and some people just go home. But most of the folks that are working there are people that have families at home. You know, they they took the job because they had medical debt, or they had student debt that they were trying to pay off, or they just couldn't get ahead financially in you know the job that they were in, or they suffered an economic recession, or like they were trying to keep their house from being foreclosed on or something like that. Some, just about everybody had, and, and that's what happened to me. I had been part of a big financial recession living in Atlanta and, you know, ended up waiting tables for a few years and couldn't get my head above water. And then I had this opportunity to take this job overseas that was more money than I had ever made, which was still not like a shocking amount. Um, it wasn't the the kind of numbers that get thrown around for people. Like we weren't all getting paid $250,000 a year. In fact, most of us weren't, you know, but it was still a really good salary, you know, and I took a chance. I took the job and, you know, thought like, this is my chance to get my head back above water. And and it gave me that opportunity. I was, I was lucky. I was unmarried at the time. I still don't have any kids. So, you know, I didn't have as many expenses and I was able to kind of get myself into like a place of financial stability because of this. But, you know, there, there were some downsides with that. Things like, you know, people were shooting rockets at us. There were people right. I knew that died. A lot of them, you know, that's the unglamorous part that isn't told. We talked about this in the episode that I did with Gay Spacecast about how contractors are essentially an invisible army that is not reported to the public. It's not even really known to the officials whose job it is to oversee the war. So Congress doesn't have a clear picture on how many contractors there ever were at any given point in time. But it was essentially a one-to-one ratio of contractors to troops or higher, and at times a two-to-one ratio of contractors to troops. But without the follow-up care and all of that, you get all the resources and assets that... Exactly. And so, you know, you've got these contractors, they were in the same areas, the same, we're facing a lot of the same exposure to risk that the troops are facing, but there's no VA for us to come home to. There's no ongoing support system if you're injured as a result of, of something that happens on the job there. There's supposed to be, we're supposed to be covered by something called the Defense Base Act, but it's very poorly administered. It's essentially like the workman's comp version of military contracting. Who would have thought that an, another benefit program where you can't actually exercise the benefit without jumping through 35 hoops? It, exactly. It's extremely difficult to qualify. And 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 also, it's like most people just don't know how the process works. And so, you know, and, and a lot of people don't know, like, what counts as an injury. Like, people come home with trauma and they don't have any way to seek help for that trauma. They don't have any way to understand that it is a form of injury that requires care. They're even in a state of trauma. Like, you know, yeah, that PTSD is real. That's all. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I was I was going to kind of follow up with uh, about something sure. you said about the uh, and, and I just a lot of I've seen a lot of troops highlight this in their years. It's like you, you leave a war zone for some period of time and then you go to some type of place that is, you know, viewed as, as modern or, you know, just a so-called civilization that just say if you were, you know, spending most of your time in Afghanistan or Iraq and then you go for three weeks in Dubai. That, these are two totally different worlds in the same region yeah. of the world. So yeah. did you ever experience any of that or anybody you work with experience anything or talk about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, like the culture shock of going from the war zone to like exiting the war zone, whether it's for vacation or because you found a different job or something. I mean, that's it's definitely and there's no support system or even talk about support about that transition, even just learning how to like function in a normal environment where you have to go out and do grocery shopping and like take care of your laundry and like learn how to like interact with people again. A lot of contractors that I talked to, this is one of the reasons why like for a long time, I didn't talk about my experiences as a contractor because you feel like nobody else understands what you went through except other contractors. And a lot of people aren't interested in hearing about it. But really, when you get down to the nuts and bolts about it, the experiences that we had, yes, they happened under extraordinary circumstances, but they are no different 
on a fundamental level from the universal experiences of workers everywhere. If, if you're hearing me talk about like 12 hour shifts that get pushed into 14 and 16 hour shifts, I mean, that's exactly what workers at the Frito-Lay plant were talking about in right. that when they went on strike this summer and they called them suicide shifts. And you know what? They were. And they talked about how like when you work shifts like that, like you you have no life, you have no, there's no way to have like time with your family, you know, and, and those folks were doing it without the benefit of the expectation of oh, like you're going to get three weeks off at the end of this like three months of, of suicide shifts <laughs> you know there's there's no yeah. expectation of that for, for so a lot of the experiences that we have about like the working conditions and the expectations of productivity and the environment that we're in apart from the extraordinary aspect of it being actually in a war zone where you do have the danger of literally being killed by a rocket it's really universal to the experience of exploited workers everywhere and and that's the thing right. that I really want people to understand is like to understand that contractors are part of the workforce that we should be engaging and looking to build solidarity with and to organize and to understand that it is part of the labor struggle and that, you know, there are a handful of people, a handful of companies, a handful of individuals who run those companies who did get very, very wealthy off of the $8 trillion that we have spent on the global war on terror since 9-11. But the vast majority of us are people who were just there because we needed a job and, you know, we took the job. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just yeah, just like, I mean, it happens in the video games development sector. It happens in, you know, video games comes with this sort of prestige of I've guts and glory and all of that. And I'm imagining there's a, a certain amount of like, we're doing America work, you know. Oh, kind yeah. Of, uh, yeah. I, I have a question about, um, did you have any interactions with or much interaction with our coalition partners? Meaning with troops from like other, other countries? countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the companies that I worked for provided um, what they called BLS, base life support services, logistics support for military operations on bases. And uh, essentially, it was our our job to like build the housing, you know, that people lived in, both other contractors and the military to maintain facilities, to keep the electricity working, to keep the HVAC working, keep the plumbing operational. We ran the dining facilities. I mean, we it was really an impressive amount of work, making sure that all these meals are going out and are being run and operated in a safe manner. We did the laundry services, like all this, and, and also just moving the supplies around was a big part of it as well. And so doing this kind of logistic support work, we interacted heavily with other contractors and with other troops from other countries that, you know, had access to some of those services. Gotcha. When you are talking about all of these logistics and, and all the things that are going on here, are these American companies then? So the way the structure works is that you usually have like um, a prime contractor that has, you know, that is like awarded the task. Um, they, they call them task orders. They're awarded the task of, of fulfilling a, a certain like set of um, obligations. And then within that task order, there is a whole bunch of like subsequent um, kind of breakout pieces. So we provided base life support services. One component of that was running the dining facility. One component of that was running the laundry facility where we would wash everybody's clothes. And you would subcontract out to smaller companies, usually uh. regional based, that would, you know, would hire people. Like, so for example, that was supposedly one of the selling points of going to war was that we were going to bring jobs to countries and to people that don't have them and that they're going to get so excited about having, you know, this new income and these new opportunities that it's going to create democracy. Like that was the, the selling point <laughs> that, that was pushed to Congress. I know we're all laughing now, but that was a real selling point that was, was pushed to Congress. You say, hey, we are here with money. <laughs> now, right. please go do democracy. That's right. Thank exactly. you. Do democracy. Good day, exactly. huh? like, like, here you are. Have a dollar. Don't you want to be democratic now? <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, it's, and, and there's a lot. Oh my gosh, there's so much that I could get into about how these subcontracts work. There were many layers to them. There were like subcontractors and there were like third tier contractors, you know, subcontractors to the subcontractors to the subcontractors. And so it can go like layers down. And there definitely like oversight and enforcement does become more of a problem and it becomes, and, and that really, I'm going to be very candid, becomes a mechanism for the the Defense Department agencies responsible for that oversight to shield themselves from responsibility. Because if, if it's not my job to look over the subcontractor, 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 then if they're, you know, for example, not paying people for six months and forcing them to live in squalor and not feeding them proper food, well, I'm not the one who's responsible for that. So it's just really more about shielding accountability 
sustainability than it is about actually making sure that the work is done at the best price and the most efficient way possible and and that you know, that the workers are getting what they ought to be getting and that the work is getting done properly. Now, do you think that these, uh, let's call them, you know, vulnerabilities in the system or the uh, potential for corruption through obfuscation was a design feature or flaw? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I think that, you know, I have enough experience contracting with the military to know that they enjoy having the flexibility in their contracts of being able to have plausible deniability when things are not going a certain way. But at the same time, they want to have enough control so that if they are called on the carpet, then they can say like, well, these are the mechanisms that we have in place to prevent that from happening. So I think it's there's a degree where they want that wiggle room in there. To that extent, it is a, a feature. But there are also ways that, as with all systems involving human beings, there are always going to be people that find ways to exploit weaknesses in a system to create problems that we didn't anticipate or that we maybe should have anticipated, but we chose not to. Capitalism. Yeah. That's right. Um, right. You know, so where where is all that money going? Well, that is the question. It really is going into the pockets of a very small group of people, just like everything else in capitalism. You know, there were the contracts that we had, a lot of them were designated something called cost plus, where essentially whatever the cost of the item is to do, then a percentage on top of that is what the company actually makes. And, you know, there's a like a certain like bare amount that they're supposed to be able to charge for different things. But that certainly creates a system where like prices can be inflated for things. And there were definitely some some controversies around everyday items, you know, having incredible markups there. Those were the results of, you know, some people that were not uh, receiving effective oversight and enough people wanted to have their plausible deniability that it slipped through those cracks. And, you know, enough people were like, hey, it's not my problem. That's like, I'm not the one who's in charge of looking over that guy's shoulder. That's the other person's responsibility. So that kind of abuse does happen. To pretend that it only happens in military contracting is kind of laughable to me like you just look anywhere in capitalism like that kind of exploitation is is just it's a feature of capitalism that's right yeah i'm wondering too i'm i'm um also worried that my chair sounds like i'm sitting on a bag of farts so um apologies you're like it is my chair we're not hearing we're not hearing anything but now that you said (laughs) that we're all going to be listening for it so that's right right i'll just make little noises um every now and again count how many farts so (laughs) I'm imagining sort of like a, I didn't really watch the show when I was younger, and I only saw reruns, of course, because I am so young, but MASH with like the big green tents, and the little cots, and poles and things, and like hanging stuff, and all the ladies are wearing their camo gear, and uh, their cycles have all aligned, and so they are like one formation (laughs) of formidable. I don't remember that episode of MASH, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't. There's some problematic. I was going to bring up some of the mash stuff, but I was like, I don't think I'm going <laughs> to. We don't need to unpack Well, no, all why that. not? I mean, actually, I so I love mash. I grew up watching mash. My dad was a Vietnam vet, and, you know, I grew up with him being, in, in addition, he was a career army guy. So I grew up around the military, and, you know, we, we watched mash, and we loved it and thought it was hilarious, and I still think it's hilarious. Yes, of course, it's problematic. Of course, looking at that content from the, the lens of 2021. Right. Trans issues and, you know, that. Yeah. He's a lot of of course, of course, but I still think it's a very funny show. I will say that having grown up watching it and enjoying it from that perspective, I went back last year and watched it again because it's on Hulu. And I just uh, I kind of like binged the whole the whole series, all what was like 11 seasons of it or something like that. It's a crazy amount of television. Binge watched all of it. And having been in that situation in Iraq and Afghanistan, living in a tent with 40 other people, I was really caught off guard by how much of that show just deeply resonated with my experience in both of those places. And you wouldn't think that would be the case. I mean, that was a show that was filmed in the 70s about a war that took place in the 50s and you know like you wouldn't think that that would be the case in the early 2000s but like it was a lot of it just doesn't change that is the experience the human experience yeah yeah and i I definitely feel like people that have you know that have served or have spent time they resonate with mash they talk about it but that mash Mm -hmm. was also deeply subversive wasn't it it was also like silver just as an example of like how 
much it resonates with my experience. Like, you know, there's a bunch of episodes, obviously, you get very cold winters in, in Korea. Uh, so there's a bunch of episodes where they, you know, they show that the guys are like trying to survive in their tent and they're all bundled up in their beds. Literally in Afghanistan, after I graduated from the tent and I received a bunk space in what they called a bee hut, which is literally a building made out of plywood that has no insulation whatsoever. Okay. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to live in a in a bee hut. I had a, a very, very small room that was um, not much bigger than the bed that occupied it, but it did have walls and a door and that was an upgrade. It got so cold in Afghanistan. And although we had a heating unit for our bee hut, it was not strong enough to actually provide enough heat to like wow. the entire room. And so I literally, like there's a couple of feet of snow on the ground outside, it's bitterly cold. You're in the foothills of the Hindu Kush mountains. I literally had to order an electric blanket, which we technically weren't supposed to have. I would sleep in like four layers of clothes with like thick oh wool socks. God. And I was still like shivering myself to sleep at night. And like I went through three winters like that. <laughs> you know, and, and that's just, you would think for all the money that we were spending that we would have, and, and it's like, let's not forget that, you know, when we went to war in, in Korea, that we were spending a lot of money on that war too, but we weren't spending it on keeping people warm. <laughs> so we were spending it more on the bombs. Right. So. But uh, any fires? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of dangers about, you know, that was one of the reasons why electric blankets technically were not supposed to be allowed is because they would short out. But like there was no way yeah. to get through the winter without them. You know, yeah, definitely. Like in, in a bee hut, as you might imagine, a building made out of plywood that's full of like bedding burns to the ground in about two minutes flat. Yeah, it's a, it's a so tinderbox. Why do they call it a bee hut and not just a butt? <laughs> I'm trying to remember the the reason for it. It's a military term, but it, it has to do with the, the type of structure. It's pretty bougie, so yeah, I, I can see why they call it the bee hut. <laughs> bee huts or sea huts is what they were called, but yeah, I mean, just literally structures made out of plywood. So wh where did you spend the most time? And when you were in theater, by the way, I don't know the or like the etymology of like using theater to describe yeah. war zone, but I've yeah. always thought that was kind of odd. Because I mean, obviously, it's, it's just the nomenclature of yeah. the modern military is to say you're either in or out of theater. And I'm just like, right. I just don't like that equivocation. <laughs> It's especially weird for me because I was a theater major. I studied theater for 16 years before I went to go work in war zones. <laughs> and so being a drama nerd and like I actually like my bachelor's degree is in theater arts. Like, uh, yeah, hearing it talk about a theater is, is weird. But I also just adjusted to it. It's just the, what they called it. Um, yeah. So when I was in, in theater, I spent majority of the time I spent in Iraq. Uh, I spent about five years there. I spent about three years in Afghanistan and then some other time kind of in between. So yeah, most of it was in Iraq and uh, definitely, but ironically, I mean, I had some close calls in Iraq. I had some very close calls in Iraq, but I... With guns, bombs, or people? Bombs. Bombs. Oh, wow. Yeah. I literally, one time I had a, uh, we did occasionally get a day off when we were in theater. Very occasionally. Um, we had like a few holidays that we could use. Like, you know, you could take Christmas off, but you couldn't take off Christmas day. Like you had to pick a day sometime around Christmas time to take that day off. And like, literally all you would do is sleep. And I, I was one, of, it was one of those days that I had a, a vacation or like a holiday day to use. And I was taking the day off and I was resting and I was laying in my bunk asleep. And I heard the telltale sign, the, you know, the, the whistling going overhead. And I knew enough i was awake enough to roll out of my bed and hit the floor and a rocket went straight over the trailer that i was living in and hit a twenty thousand gallon bag of fuel across the street a bag of fuel yeah a, a fuel bladder across the street from where i lived Holy from the trailer that i lived in, from the Jesus. soft skin trailer that i lived in yeah so I, I mean i had some close calls like that but actually um there were scarier moments in afghanistan we had several really like campaigns of sustained mortar fire where we were like literally sitting in the bunker all night because it was just like constant shelling and then there was a couple of instances where someone believed to be a suicide bomber got on base and was not able to be found and we had to shelter in place, which, you know, when you're sitting in your plywood shack, the idea that a suicide bomber is walking around is not a comforting thought. Um, what, you know, staying in your room doesn't feel like something that's very, like, helpful or safe, but it's, you know, definitely, like, reducing movement made it easier for them to, to locate the individual involved. And that, that was not an idle threat. I mean, this is about eight months after I left Afghanistan. My former boss was actually killed on base by a suicide bomber. 
bomber. That was not an idle threat. He, uh, there was a suicide bomber that got onto base and it was someone who had been working on base. It was a local who had been employed on the base. We had a lot of contractors that, that worked there on the base and they were frequent targets um, for recruitment. Either they would be coerced into trying to do something by threats against their family, or some of them were recruited to take action, to, you know, get a job on base to take action. And, you know, this suicide bombing happened literally outside of a dining facility that I used to eat breakfast in every morning and across the street from the place that I lived. And, you know, it happened to be eight months after I left and it killed my, uh, my former boss, you know, but these are not idle threats. These things happen. And, you know, we talked about this being a shadow army. You know, you hear the numbers reported all the time for the number of U.S. troops that died in Iraq and Afghanistan, you will n almost never, like, I think I can count on one hand the number of times I have read a mainstream publication report the number of civilian contractors that have died. They will report the troops and they will sometimes will remember to report the civilian <laughs> casualties, the, you know, the actual right. civilian population, which is, of course, a much, much higher number and is deeply underreported, but they never report the actual contractors who died. And very few people know that definitely in the case in Afghanistan, I'd have to go back and check the numbers in Iraq, but definitely in Afghanistan, more American contractors were killed in Afghanistan than U.S. troops. Yeah, no surprise. Why the, why the obfuscation? I mean, I, is it the obfuscation that begets the ignoring or is there, are people waved off of that information or it's just so hard to get that? Or, I mean, I, well, and, and I just want to interject real quick yeah, there please. because, and I was just going to use this one example. When I was in boot camp, there was a, a contractor in Iraq who had been decapitated on film and our, oh, our drill instructor like made us sit and watch this video a couple few times, you know? be like mm -hmm. these are your enemies da 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 you know Ugh. uh so it but but the thing is it's like that guy i think his last name might have been berg berg or something like that in 0304 uh maybe a, a electrician or, or or transportation contractor of some sort mm -hmm. and uh but that got a lot of play yeah but you don't really i don't think in real time I, I would say the pentagon would just say oh well we're just gonna you know make all this as much of this secret as possible because right, right. they don't want people to know a lot of this stuff. There's a um, a research paper written by two professors of Georgetown University. I think one of them is only still a professor there, and it's called Dead Contractors. And it was published in 2011 was the first time that I read it. I have pulled it up again and referenced it many times. I've actually reached out to the the authors of it to, to touch base with them and tell them how important their work was to me. But they wrote this paper about how the use of contractors in the battlefield depresses the public public's casualty sensitivity index, that it shields the number of people who are dying in service of the, the cause, so to speak. So when when we go to war, you know, there's a public relations campaign that is put in place to convince us that here's the reasons why we need to go to war and why war is important and why it's a it's a worthwhile cause in this particular case. It's a it's a, a justifiable fight. And you know the people think, that, uh, well mm -hmm. think think weapons of mass destruction 2002 ish <laughs> right, exactly. Or even just think about 9-11. Think about 9-11 right. and like, yeah. we got to go to Afghanistan and get the people that, you know, did 9-11. Okay, so like a lot of people were very much on board with, with invading Afghanistan for that reason. Like we got to go and get justice for the, the 3,000 people who, who, who were murdered in, in our country. With that justification in mind, you know, the public, broadly speaking, says, okay, this is a justifiable war. We're on board. We're going to get behind it. And then as people begin, troops begin to die, as that number goes up, then it starts to feel less worth it. And that was a big part of what turned the public's tide against Vietnam was the, spy the skyrocketing deaths and injuries. And, and we talk about deaths, but like hundreds of thousands of troops were injured and hundreds of thousands of contractors were injured in Iraq and Afghanistan, far more than, than is being tabulated and, and properly um, accounted for. Um, and, and again, I'm not even addressing like the, the impact on the civilian population, which is much, much higher in the millions and is vastly underreported. But that is, a, that is another conversation, I think. But this paper was so important to me. It was published around the time that we were pulling out of Iraq and I was sitting in Afghanistan as a contractor when I read it. And I had I had had these conversations with friends of mine, people who like they didn't have these, you know, these evil assumptions about contractors. They didn't really understand what I did, but they didn't have these like bad assumptions about like, oh, all contractors are, are this or are that. They didn't think like, 
like literally everybody is Blackwater, but they they just didn't they didn't get it. And I, I shared this paper with friends of them to try to like help them like get informed. Like like the, this will give you some insight. Like you know the media is telling you just to give like a round number. The media is telling you that a thousand troops have died between this date and this date. But if you counted the contractor deaths in addition to that, it would be two thousand people that have died. And when you start talking about Afghanistan, like if you added the number of troops and contractors who died, it's nearly 7,000 Americans that died in just Afghanistan. And that changes the way people feel about the price that we paid in terms of our intervention there. And so there is a degree, like there are moments absolutely where it is in the Pentagon's interests and it is it's sometimes in the contractors, the, the company's interests to promote that like a, a, you know, some violence has befallen, you know, in a particularly nasty way, uh, someone who's serving there as a contractor, there's times where it benefits them from a public relations perspective, but most of the time it benefits them to not have that front of mind of people because it makes everyone aware of the ultimate cost that is being paid. And it starts to raise questions again, like not just talking about deaths, but how many people are coming home with life altering injuries? How many people are coming home with PTSD? How many people right. are coming home and just like are, are on some level maladjusted and like is a lot of folks that like got out of the service and immediately signed up to become contractors because that was the way that they could continue to operate in the environment where they felt like normal yeah we'll have that that scholarly paper and uh we'll include it in our show notes i just yeah. pulled it up here it is dense it is very dense. And and I will say too, like when you when you read this paper, you know, understand that it was published ten years ago. The numbers that you will see cited in that paper, all of them are low balls. All of them. The the only official accounts that we have are the troop injuries and deaths, because those are very accurately accounted for. But for all of the contractors, and I've really focused this discussion on like American contractors, there's a whole other layer there of the the subcontractors, the people coming from mm. other parts of the world, they're impacted in the same way. They they are in no more or less danger of being killed by a rocket attack than than any of us are um, when we're in that environment. And when I say us, I mean the American contractors and the troops. And, you know, so that those folks are going home and they have no um, institutional support for there because their country didn't go to war. No, there's there's no institutional support there for them. There's no social support for them. There's no expectation of ongoing care. There's no benefits for their if someone, you know, is killed in their line of work uh, over there. There's no benefits for the spouse to receive or for their family to receive as a result of that. Um, they're just they're just gone. The contractors, they don't count. <laughs> That's the hard reality. And that's every one of these jobs that is being done by a contractor in a war zone and, and everywhere else that the military operates. Like, why is the U.S. military as much money as we spend on the Pentagon and as humongous as our military is? Like, how are we still able to maintain the operations level that we have all over the world in, like, I don't even know how many countries that we're operating in, but it's well over 100. You know, how are we able to do that? And and it's because we have these, like, layers and layers of, of civilian workforces that are adjacent to and in support of the work that the um, the actual uniform personnel are doing. It reminds me a little bit of like the gig worker economy. Yeah. You know, like we just got to, we got to get it to people fast and we got to do this stuff. And so we're going to cut a lot of corners and sort of, you know, even romanticize or like all the freedom you get. You're your own business person. You know, uh, interesting that there uh, we will also provide a link to um, a Wikipedia article or page that talks about list of private contractor deaths in Afghanistan. And it does take into account and it even says, you know, and this is like now as we, you know, pay more attention to this kind of stuff. And it's just a partial list. That they just, yeah. No one has a full list. And that's because there is no, like I, one of the jobs that I had at one point, I worked for like the health, safety and environmental team. And part of our responsibility was to investigate and document incidents that led to occupational injuries and deaths. You know, we also had a lot of other responsibilities in terms of like just overseeing the safety of day-to-day -day operations and all of that. But um, but we had to do incident reports every time there was a um, an injury or casualty. And it could be like, you know, guy hits his hand with a hand hammer, you know, building a fence, like normal occupational kind of injuries that, that take place. But they also included reports that I had to help write of truck drivers who got blown up by IEDs. It haunts me to this day. There is one report in particular that I had to draft for um, a truck driver who had been involved in a, an incident like that, pulled his best friend's body out of a burning cab. 
and was was sent out on a like a medical leave of absence for a period of time to recuperate from his own injuries and his psychological trauma. But he was very eager to come back. He needed the work. And so he came back after some months and uh, he was too traumatized to continue working as a truck driver operating, as they called outside the wire, where he drove from base to base. And so they gave him a job as a truck driver driving a water truck on base. And he still had such a deep psychological traumatic response to even just driving a truck on a base where rockets still came that he ended up having to be medically demobbed to uh, 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 demobilized me medically okay. demobilized sent home medically demobbed on uh, on account of of his inability to continue working in that environment and i had to write the report with that man's six page statement detailing the nightmares that he still has and you know like that that sticks with you you know, and those people went home with no support system, no social, not even a social support system, an understanding of like, these are people that, you know, have experienced some bad things that need help. And a lot of our PTSD discussion has kind of arisen over the last 10 to 15 years, primarily around almost an army infantry-esque type of understanding. You would think that some people probably think that like PTSD is something you get from war rather right. than like just something you get from some type of, you know, uh, trauma. Major traumas. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Corey, uh, do you, I don't want to, I don't want to get too personal. We've already asked so much of you in that regard, but how have you pieced together your, you know, peace of mind? Like you, you dealt with these things, being on the edge of that and being so close to other people's trauma and loss and the regular reminder of trauma and loss being so adjacent to that danger and yeah. to that noise and to that, that whole situation. How are you doing? I um I think I'm doing okay. Um I had the benefit of having some done some work on myself emotionally and psychologically before I took this job where I had um, for a period of years I was dealing with some really serious depression and PTSD due to some other things that had happened in my life and so I had been through some therapy and you know had at one point in time was on antidepressants I no longer was like years before I even took this job you know so I had the opportunity I was fortunate at that point in my life to have health insurance that did cover mental health care which is not a thing that a lot of people have so because of that I had tools to kind of mentally prepare myself for how to cope with that and the kind of self-awareness to uh, know when I needed to step out, know when I needed to find other people that I could relate to, to be able to talk through these things. And that is why contractors kind of gravitate towards each other. You know, I sort of alluded to this earlier from a social standpoint, like contractors are very sensitive to, like, we don't want to be seen as equating ourselves with people who serve in uniform. We don't want us equating ourselves with the troops because like we have as a social kind of order of things like we have designated like we're not going to repeat what we were doing to you know the troops that were returning from Vietnam you know we're not going to vilify the people although there's a tinge of that happening on the left right now and I think it's a thing that we need to be very hyper conscious of that we, we should frankly be treating the troops as workers within the system themselves that's right and, and consider them in in that same like level of solidarity completely agree I agree 100%. But at, at the same time, like, you know, so because there's like, I, I'm going to, I'm going to use the word we here. I'm, I'm not speaking about myself. I'm talking about like contractors in general, about how like those of us who have done this work kind of feel about this as a community. And I am speaking on the basis of my discussions with other people. I'm not speaking on behalf of all contractors. I can't do that. Obviously, we have very, very different experiences and opinions about things. But, you know, we in general, we don't want to be seen as equating ourselves with troops but at the same time like we want people to know like what we've experienced we want people to understand that it was a real sacrifice something real was taken from us that was yeah we signed up for it so did people that signed up to serve in uniform it's an all-volunteer army that's right <laughs> that's so uh, great. you know i was gonna ask on that point because yeah. I, I think this happens a lot to people in the military so once you sign on the employment contract and you find yourself in theater mm -hmm. is there a way to say oh this is not what I thought I was signing up for. I right. am yeah. out of here. Yeah. Like, there is, what's there is, the pro? 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there is. And that that is definitely a very important distinction. And thank you for raising it. That's an important distinction between contractors and troops. And that's that's something that's to the benefit of both the worker and the employer and the Pentagon, because, uh, you know, it's just easier for them to replace it with somebody else that can come in. Yeah, there is a there is an immediate like kind of like a ripcord clause. Like and, and I have been on these planes where we landed in Baghdad and somebody on the plane looked around and said, you know what? Nope. This. And literally <laughs> sat on the plane until they took back off to go back to Dubai. I am not kidding. It has happened. I have seen it. I've seen a lot of people that, you know, came in and after like the first month or two, they would they would choose to go. And, you know, nothing but respect for those folks, because honestly, it isn't for everybody. It's not something that everybody is 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 in a place to be able to do or wants to do. And I think it's really good that people have the opportunity to, to kind of see that and confront it and say, you know what? Nope, I'm going to leave. I've reached my, my limit. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is definitely an important distinction between like the freedom that, that contractors do have that troops don't have. Was there a any sort of sense of a pressure to minimize the impact that contractors had, you know, that were the, or that that environment had on contractors rather, and sort of minimize it and shield? I, I just, I, it's wild that I don't hear more of this. But as you've opened my mind to this situation, and the more I've read, the more that I, I mean, it's all out there. Well, okay, yeah, I'm going to give like a really pointed example about of this. Okay, there's a really pointed example. Okay, so you've probably all heard about or read about at some point the uh, discussion about the burn pits in Iraq. Like, oh, the, you know, the burn pits. And the way that it's framed is the contractor just recklessly ran these burn pits where they were just burning yeah. all this toxic stuff and they were poisoning our troops. That's the story that gets told. That is, yeah. Here's the truth. The contractor in this case was directed by the military to run that burn pit. That was the method of disposal for trash before they brought in million dollar incinerators to actually properly dispose of the of the garbage. The contractor was executing a directive that was issued by the military commanders who oversaw and were responsible for their actions. And the troops that were there that breathed what things that caused breathing issues for them yes that was bad those folks were there for 12 15 months deployments a lot of those contractors were there breathing those same toxins for five years seven years ten years and they don't have a va to go home to have there been any analyses done of them or any studies don't count they're contractors there's no central database so when i worked in that team where we we were responsible for investigating uh, occupational incidents you know if if somebody was injured on the job we would have to write up a report and it was it was reported through osha that was the mechanism that we were we were instructed to use so we did that we followed osha guidelines and and we followed that process and and still follow that process i mean those contracts are still happening all the time right now um so this is still going on however that goes into the same database as every other work place injury that takes place anywhere in the world that falls under the auspices or anywhere I'd say inside the United States that falls under the auspices of OSHA. There's no central database um, within the Defense Department that is tracking reports of like, you know, this person showed up to the clinic reporting breathing problems and then, you know, five other people came in over the next month reporting breathing problems. There's no central database where that kind of information is getting collected for contractors the way that it is for the troops because they're going through the actual like military healthcare system. And so there's no opportunity for that information to be discovered. You know, my my father, when he was in Vietnam, he was exposed to Agent Orange, as many troops were. And because of the fact that every troop who was there, their health care was being documented and their their continuing health care being documented through the VA, they were able to discover that decades later that all of these veterans who had been exposed to Agent Orange were developing diabetes and other kinds of health complications that have now been deemed to be actual, like the, the root cause of that is is determined to be Agent Orange because they were they were exposed and they they have these um these lifelong health complications as a result. And so there's a lot of things that go along with that. It determines the kind of health care that they get, it determines the kind of benefits that they receive when they retire determines the kind of death benefits that their um, that their partner receives when that person passes away. It's some situation my mom is dealing with right now, and that's all because that data is centrally stored, organized, and known and visible to the Department of Defense. That does not exist 
for contractors, you know, since we've moved to this more system where it's it's contractors alongside troops. And so breathing problems for troops, you know, that's going to be studied. And like if, if there's cancer that emerges as a result of that, like that will be something that gets applied to like how they adjudicate veterans benefits and, and health care um, requirements for veterans of those wars. But that same thing is not going to be extended to the contractors that were exposed for much longer and often more closely because we were like the ones running the facility uh, or living right next to it. Uh, and so like that information is it's not been captured. There's no there's no way for us to be able to to see that that is an, an emerging long term health implication associated with their service in Iraq. So I want to kind of buttress that point with an, another point. The, Daniel Bessner, who's kind of a, a lefty foreign policy guy over at the Quincy Institute, was talking about an inability to accurately measure uh, the number of mercenaries that have been deployed over the last 10 to 15 years. And, you know, so based on what you say and based on what he says, like, we're really like hitting on something that I think kind of profound because it gives large numbers of people who believe they're trying to understand war or trying to study it. They're not even getting close to uh, a good representation of what has happened through their mm-hmm. data sets, right? So there's a real profound quantitative issue at a source mm-hmm. with this. Yep. That kind of hits at a fundamental understanding of modern foreign policy making. So you might say, hey, there are some people in the Pentagon who know these things or some people in some of these tech firms that know these things through big data analyses. But where's academia on this? Yeah. Can a modern public university actually do foreign policy research on a deep level right now with all of these inaccuracies and observations yeah. of data? Just as a, a side point, we'll, we'll include some links to uh, Bessner's work, but the idea that, that there being a, a military intellectual complex, <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Yeah, when I, I reached out to the author of the, the paper, Dead Contractors, recently, first of all, he was really appreciative to hear that it was something that was very meaningful to me. And I, and I didn't know this, but he himself was a, is a veteran. And he became interested in the subject when he later became a professor, became interested in the subject matter because he saw he was part of that apparatus. He was it's like, I see all these contractors around me. They're doing this work. They're exposed to the same dangers that we are. They're sometimes exposed to more dangers than we are. And they're completely invisible to the policymakers that are deciding how these things get done and so it was just to hear he, he he told me that it meant a lot you know to hear from someone that you know was in that position and 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 it, it is that, like his work is was incredibly impactful on me and it's really just heartbreaking but not at all surprising to me that it, it has gotten so little public attention because it's just like it's a lot like and this is something i know you can appreciate bill working in the criminal justice system is it's a lot like the way that we are just now starting to come to terms as a society with thinking about incarcerated people as human beings deserving of dignity and rights. And it's like this idea that like we can Excuse talk me? about. Excuse me, are you, <laughs> right. did that happen in America? Right. Well, it's just beginning in some circles of political <laughs> right. discussion that it's like, you know, actually we, maybe we should be thinking about incarcerated people as human beings and not like something subhuman, you know, but like contractors, like to, to even be able to like articulate a thought in your own head that they're not these like money chewing demons these avatars of evil the vast majority of the people involved in that process are just people who needed a job who took a job that was available to them and you know this is the situation that that job put them in you know if if you think about it on those terms it really starts to change the way you engage with the subject matter but like the the media is not ready to have that conversation and a lot of just people in general are are not ready to grapple with that because it feels like, oh, I'm dishonoring the troops if I'm talking about what contractors went through. We can't dishonor the troops. Or, or if you're saying a basic thing, like people right. do tear, like they engage yeah. in terrible systems in order to survive. Yeah. It's it's just that simple. I know tons of people, everybody who knows anybody in military or is from a military background knows tons of people who do it pretty much just a paycheck. And I'm not saying everyone does it. I'm not saying it's a sole motive. I'm just saying that, you know, it's a motivating fact and often a a profound motivating. 
Well, yeah, like you hear a lot of folks talk about how the poverty is the draft. I mean, there's a reason why military recruiters circle around neighborhoods that have fewer economic opportunities available to them, because that is, you know, those are the people that are going to be more likely to be enticed by a steady paycheck and, you know, housing and food and and free healthcare and free college. Like those are those are big selling points in, in favor of that. And, you know, with contracting, you know, they do they definitely sell the whole like you're gonna you're gonna serve your country and you're in it to support the troops and there was a part of me like when I yeah daughter of a Vietnam vet you know I grew up in a conservative military family you know there was a part of me that thought like okay this is a job that will allow me to like support the troops and will also like help me get out of this this massive financial hole that I'm stuck in that I can't seem to get free from and I I I bought it I bought it and a lot of people did you know and a lot of people will sign up with some degree of patriotic fervor but nobody stays for that reason when the reality sets in you know, you, you talked to a lot of troops that like maybe they signed up after 9-11 because they, you know, they were like, OK, I'm going to go serve my country. I'm going to do something good. I also we may want to touch on this as I found a link to the defense companies want more direction and they want relief because of the coronavirus is making them send people home so they're losing money. Oh, Lord. Yeah, there's a lot to say about that that I probably can't get into right now. But, um, you know, thinking about patriotic fervor, you know, a lot of us, we took the job because of that, you know, but we didn't stay for that reason. Like the people that stayed is like you you talk about these troops, like a lot of troops that signed up after 9-11, they signed up because they they wanted to serve their country. And, you know, there is they had the same public relations campaign that the, the public did in to justify the wars. And, you know, we can argue about whether or not those campaigns were effective or justified, but there was public support that was at some point built for both of those invasions, definitely less for Iraq. America wanted it some war. <laughs> right. <Doubt> but people <laughs> people signed up and they signed up for that reason. And then they a lot of the troops, if you talk to them, they like, yeah, I got there. And I'm like walking around. And I'm like, this is like, why are we here? There, there's no point to this. But they were signed up. They had a contract. You know, they had to serve out their term. They had to complete their deployment. That was a big difference with a lot of contractors that could get there. And they say like, whoa, this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is not guts and glory. Or this is not, this is way harder than I expected. Or this is scary or whatever. The reasons were it was overwhelming, you know, they say okay it's not for me peace out like that selling point might get you on the ground but it won't keep you there the people that stay there stayed because they they still needed the job or because the environment and the way that we operated became the thing that was you know comfortable and familiar and we didn't know how to go back to quote normal life Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder too. You know, in knowing that we're coming up on kind of wrapping for this particular episode, so it's like bring people in both on on all fronts. You know, uh, Americans in as contractors or as you know serving in the military, and bring them in with that kind of you know jingo bingo, like you know God bless America. You know, do it for the troops. All of that. You know, all that stuff. And then on the back end, sort of obfuscate the impact on contractors' lives with some vague stolen valor sort of feel like you can't really Mm -hmm. claim many of that sort of stuff as related to war zones so that's really not stay in your lane which is wild to me and there is really just for as long as we've been at war we have not because we clearly don't care about the worker you know in our previous episodes we talked about the tenant that you know the person dependent upon you know that stuff we don't really kind of care about them you know in, in a world where everybody's suffering and doubly so in COVID time. I can't see how that is a long-term sustainable plan, but we basically have basically war is corporatized now, right? Well, it's, it's more than corporatized. It's, it is the, the analogy you used earlier was perfect. It is the gig economy. The war yeah. is the gig economy. Um, and, and it was for a long time. Yeah. This is a point that uh, just a kind of anecdotal example. I think one of Assange's books, like a WikiLeaks book or something, they talked about some underling of Hillary Clinton uh, going from the State Department to Google, right? So it's like the, the tech companies are deeply integrated. In- oh, yeah, in services and in, uh, yeah, yeah. 
And that, that level of integration is unreal because at this point, so let's talk for a minute, like how do we start to undo this? Because this is clearly, yeah. like you said, it's not sustainable. No more than the gig economy is, is sustainable. Right, right. So how do we start to undo this? And one of the simplest, but not at all simple ways to do it would be to just say like, you can't have contractors in war zones. If you're going to go to war, you're going to do it with the military, just straight up. Nothing can be done by a contractor, literally not one job. You can't have a guy who's slinging potatoes, who's a contractor. They got to be someone. And you know what? We wouldn't be waging more so much if we had to do it without contractors because the military literally cannot operate without contractors. That is how integrated they are to all of the systems. They could not deploy. They could not maintain their supply lines. They could not keep their troops fed and housed without the support of contractors. So if we made that one stipulation, that would go a long way in starting to untangle this problem. Be A lot of people very mad at us, but that is a big way to take a chunk out of it. And it would also have a lot to do with like the way like the public engages with war because more, okay, uh, if you want to go do another Afghanistan, you're going to have to convince me to send not 1 million total troops that develop, that deployed over the course of 20 years, but 2 million. And twice as many of them are going to die. 500,000 of them are going to be injured. You're going to have to really sell why that's so beneficial and important to the public to justify it again. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and I, I think it, it strikes me as well as that that contractor population becomes a, a real vector for exploitation in a wartime scenario. I mean, basically, if they're captured or if they're threatened by, you know, bombs and and is it just don't care about that? Like, okay, you know, all right, great. You've got seven of our contractors. Okay. I mean, when when things like that happen, you know, the military does get involved because they, you know, I don't I don't want to sound like I'm coming down on on the troops here because they do they they take their yeah. responsibilities very seriously when it comes to like uh, you know security for escorting convoys and all of that. But I would say that the policymakers have a vested interest in suppressing that information because again, it it has to do with the way that the public interacts with our perception of what the war is costing us. And right now we have war brought to you by centrist, a.k.a. Mm -hmm. corporate imperialist. And (laughs) and half of their identity is hidden, you know, in Mm -hmm. in this corporate obfuscation of reality. Yeah. I can see, too, Corey, why you would be so sensitive to the notion of people saying, keep fighting. Why are we pulling out? Do like just sort of that cavalier without any sort of understanding of kind of all of the facets of this. The war is awful. Forever wars, they are the worst. I mean, they are the worst of humanity, the worst that we have to offer the world. But to just be so cavalier, boy, they've done a good job obfuscating some of this stuff so that it does feel a little bit more like a tactical video game decision. The thing is, is that um, we spent a lot of this discussion focusing on the experience of the American contractors. There is a just a whole other discussion to be have about the exploitation of workers and the subcontractors and the people from what we call third country nationals, other countries that are brought mm-hmm. in to work. And, and that can be anything from like Europeans to like laborers who dig ditches that are brought in from places like Philippines and Sri Lanka. You know, so there's a there's a whole layer of discussion to be had, had about the exploitation of that particular workforce and, and how much less support that they get even yeah for some reason what you said made me think of the the term the military contractors contractor yeah yeah well and that's another layer of it too is we got the the third country nationals and then there's a lot of what they call host country nationals which is where we hire contractors from we didn't get into that at all um in this discussion but in you know all the talk uh as we're you know talking about the withdrawal from afghanistan and all the policymakers were uh saying like we got to get our interpreters out we got to get our interpreters out and there were some fifty thousand uh individuals who worked for the military as interpreters for military or the state department but in addition to that there were hundreds of thousands uh, Afghans who worked for the military in other kinds of jobs, in much less glamorous jobs. A lot of them were illiterate. They were paid $5 a day. They worked jobs like like stacking boxes in a warehouse or like peeling potatoes in the dining facility or like literally just cleaning porta potties, like very, very simple jobs. Some of them were, you know, obviously very well-educated and intelligent and, you know, had a lot of different skills, but they had jobs well below their skill set because that was what we offered them. So there's, there's a different conversation to be had about workforce exploitation and 
and uh, this, okay, this is the point I was going to make is that over the course of the last 20 years that we've been doing this since 9-11, over that time, the uh, military has restructured the contracts that are issued over and over again, such that fewer of the people that are employed in these contracts are these prime contractors, these Americans that are making a certain income. And a greater percentage of the workforce is actually these people that are these third country nationals um, that are making much, much less money and have even less visibility and even fewer rights and even less institutional and social support when they go back home. Such to the point now that on a typical military contract in like a place in the Middle East, we'll have 10% of the workforce will be actually Americans and the other 90% will be of these subcontractor varieties where people are paid far, far, far less and, you know, have much less visibility and support. Sounds like a bunch of um, expendable brown people. Yes, that is exactly what it is. And that is by design by the military. That is how they've structured their contracts because they want to get the same amount of work, but they don't want to pay as much money for it because they get a lot of pressure about how much money they're spending on war. And yet somehow the Pentagon budget goes up every single year, just like this year. Pentagon budget went up again, even though we just ended a 20-year occupation of Afghanistan. Why did why do we need to spend more money on the Pentagon this year? It's, it's the why? bonuses yeah. for losing war. It's just... It's just That's right. Yeah, it's the well. You it's need the golden more, parachutes. <laughs> you need more plywood huts, bee huts right. to stack stack up people from the Philippines. Yes. So, geez. Yes, exactly. Lori, I want to just say I really, I really value and appreciate your sharing of this stuff. It is so Agreed. deeply illuminating, and the context that it provides, and the, the questions, and all of that. And I, I appreciate too that you you've been processing this for so long and then I end up with all of these and other people who were listening you know to you relate this story it's like we're not quite aware enough like we've got all these great questions that or should unpack some of this stuff and I, I think that that's that's laudable that you would that you would do that um I think it's I think it's important and I think it it is it's truly changed my perception of what military contractors are and what they do as you start to peel the onion you realize this is one big ugly stinking onion Yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate you guys just um, being willing to engage in a discussion. Um, I'm finding that more people are uh, are open to the discussion now than they were even just a couple of years ago. And I do think that that is because of the kind of discourse that we've been engaging in since the 2016 election. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful to have the space, the, to be afforded the space and to um, be afforded the opportunity to start to open up about things that I've been carrying around inside of me for 17 years and not really talking about outside of a very small, small group of people. Right. And uh, like the author of the study you cited earlier, journalists like Jeremy Scahill with his Dirty Wars in 2010, on your other, on the uh, gay space communism, they talked about Generation Kill. You know, there's Mm -hmm. Restrepo documentaries like Combat Obscura. There's a really solid foundation for people to really start to talk about and engage with these you know i think we all agree are very important topics and discussions to engage with yeah and i hope that the dialogue and that the educating and the sharing your experience and also being a part of carving out space within the dialogue that we have across all these incredibly important issues but you know brand new congress has been a big part of like ending forever wars and taking those stances and i I hope that brings some comfort and i hope too that we can look at this stuff and then start to really interrogate it to its end game you know what i mean and and to really ask these questions in a way that we have to hold people like I don't know, uh, Adam Smith from Washington State's 9th Congressional District. Why are we giving more money to the military? Why? Uh, Derek yeah. Kilmer, too. Derek Kilmer. Yeah. Too. Derek Kilmer. Yeah, absolutely. Rick um, Larson as well. I mean, all these guys, they all, sit, all, on the, of- um, they all sit on the House Armed Services Committee. I mean, Kilmer absolutely. does too, right? I know Larson um, does. I know Larson does. I'm not sure about Kilmer. Well, yeah, I know he votes for all the Pentagon budgets. I mean, it's just, oh, yeah. sure. I mean, they, they just love throwing money at the Pentagon. It's just, it's, it's nuts. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much more like y'all, we just barely scratched the surface. There's so much more to talk about this and we'll, we'll have other opportunities as well, but this is a good discussion. Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah. And just to end, uh, Kilmer is on the armed services committee. So also there, why are there three dudes from Washington state on the house armed services committee? I don't Hmm. know. Boeing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Lockheed Martin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Hmm. Wow. Good episode. I was going to say a wonderful topic, a horrifying topic. Um, yeah. You know, but <laughs> terrible topic. Terrible topic, but a great discussion. And uh, we'll have a bunch of information in our show notes, as Corey mentioned, including some other stuff that just as we started to unpeel this, that I'm doing serious searches on um, <laughs> the fascinating kind of takes and information that's out there. You know, hopefully folks will take time to check that out. Have any questions or anything, get a hold of us. We have an email address and it is breaking left at gmail.com i think you had to think about that <laughs> i had to think about it yeah um send us a note send us some thoughts uh if you disagree with us keep it to yourself jerk no i'm let us know i mean we'll uh we'll take you on right <laughs> absolutely and you can uh, find us on twitter at breaking left pod and i'm on twitter at cm archibald and i'm at uh, meta underscore troy and i'm in your dm and i think bill's yeah <laughs> Bill's, uh, Bill's on a Twitter strike, I think. <laughs> <laughs> or is he there and we just can't see him? That's right. Uh, yeah. Thanks again, All everybody. Right. Thanks, everybody. Bye.